Let's be honest. How many times have you chalked up a relationship ending to bad timing? For hosts Nancy and PJ Heslin, the answer is a lot. It took living separately in Canada, the U.S., and France, two divorces, and 20 years for timing to work out. And when it finally did in the south of France, the couple discovered they had two different versions of their love story. We all do, right? But what if your side is not the whole story and you have the journals to prove it? Keep listening to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together, a podcast on love, relationships, and two lives in between. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. Welcome to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together. almost forgot where we were. Uh, This is Nancy Heslin. And I'm PJ Aslan. PJ, episode 17. Why do we ignore the signs in relationships? I have no idea. Well, this wasn't a sign, but I kind of feel like I cheated on you last night with a plate of ribs. I wouldn't blame you. You wouldn't blame me? No. <laughs> well, you took that pretty well. If a plate of bacon came in, I would say, sayonara, sweetheart. So PJ's on a diet, and when a friend of mine last night invited me to Casa Fuego in Monton, it's an Argentinian grill, so I thought, I can't really take PJ with me. It's the same chef that is the Mirazur, which is a three-star Michelin restaurant across the street. It was voted best restaurant in the world, actually, in 2019. But we haven't eaten there, PJ, because it's 450 euros a plate. It makes me sound like I'm an animal. Like, oh, I can't take him there. He just doesn't know how to behave. If there's beef on the table, he'll just go crazy. Yeah, but when you're on a diet, I'm on a diet. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, yeah, when two people are in a relationship and living together, if uh, (laughs) one wants to succeed on a diet, the other kind of has to follow. But the thing I learned last night that was really cool is that the uh, Moro Calagreco also has a a flour mill in Monton. He decided that he would buy organic wheat from this place in the Pyrénées Orientales. I think it's called Maître de Montmoulin, something like that. And he actually grinds his own flour because, as I learned last night, in France, by law, you don't have to put on a package of flour what the additives are. What? I can't understand why you'd need additives in flour. It's just ground wheat, isn't it? I, th- I guess because it adds to the shelf life or other things like that. But you know how much flour I have in the, the pantry? Yeah. Because... Because why? Because I can't stop baking, which is perhaps why PJ sometimes his weight fluctuates. Could be. Eating a cake in a day tends to gain some weight. The good thing is, is that PJ and I actually have the same, we don't disgust each other. It's the only way I can say it. Like if we open a jar of Nutella, which happened only once, but it did happen and we just started eating with our fingers. We didn't look at the other like, oh, that's gross. Yeah. There's no sort of just having a taste of it. If it's a bag of cookies, we eat a sleeve of the cookies at a time, each just passing the bag one to the other till it's gone. But I never, I never minutes. buy cookies. What are you talking about? I make everything by scratch. That's talking? true. You, but yeah, we have bought treats. Like for example, ice cream. <laughs> ice cream does. Let's talk about ice cream. Doesn't even have time to sort of melt before yeah, but, it's devoured. So here's in this, place. The, this is the sad thing, though. It's summer, and I can't buy ice cream because it's impossible for me to not feel guilty eating 
in between meals or eat anything that's not like on PJ's diet. Why yeah. are why are we doing this diet, PJ? Because uh, I am trying to lose some weight uh, because I want to run the Nice Can Marathon with some friends at work. So my load-bearing structures, such as my hips and my lower back, uh, are saying, please, just take a little bit of the pressure off us. So yeah, just trying to shed a couple of pounds. But you've done so well. You've lost four kilos in four weeks. So that's what, eight pounds? No, yeah. is that eight pounds? Uh, eight is it the other point one? something pounds, yeah. But I think... After yesterday, I gained it back. That's okay. It was just—it was a good, relaxing holiday yesterday. I watched a lot of Netflix yesterday. But do you remember that summer? I don't know, five or six, maybe even longer ago. But you decided that you wanted to get down to a super low seventy-seven kilos for a jiu-jitsu yeah, tournament. That I think was, it was. Uh, yeah, it was five years ago. It was a jiu-jitsu tournament, so I wanted to get down to the. 77 kilo weight class. So that was months of 20 eating. kilos you lost? I think so. Uh, yeah, it was at least 20 kilos. Yeah. Because you would go every God, week to insane. the, I know you went every week to that pharmacy. Because here in France, you can go to the pharmacy and you get like a ticket readout. Maybe you won't get tickets anymore because as of August 1st, they, you can no longer have paper tickets in France for receipts. Oh, that's a sideline. Anyway, you used to get these. Tickets that would tell you your weight, and it just went down and down and down. And I remember looking and saying, "How are you being so disciplined about this?" And do you remember what you told me? How what what was in your mind about the motivation to lose weight? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's if you're uh, ninety kilos and uh, uh, you're in a jujitsu tournament, ninety kilos falling on top of you is a lot more difficult than seventy-seven kilos falling on top falling on top of you. Yeah, it was good motivation to, yes. to lose weight. And what actually happened at that tournament? Uh, won one, lost one, then right home in a bag of chips. I mean, you dieted for a long time. Even the people at the pharmacy told you to stop losing weight. You looked unwell. <laughs> yes, I, I got to the point where even I was looking in the mirror and I said, oh, you, this looks like you have some sort of illness. Can you actually like feel a difference now that you've lost, say, four kilos or whatever, like, do you really notice a difference in your body? Yeah, you notice it uh, definitely with, for me, it's running, because like s swimming and cycling, you don't notice it that much, but running, you definitely do. Just the, the, there's not the pain in my hips and lower back. And yeah, definitely when I'm running, you know, it's a lot less, a uh, lot more fabric in the belly area. But can I ask you something? Why do you allow yourself? Because this happens every year, especially around Christmas. Now, I take responsibility because I love to bake, but you always allow your weight to just go right it's up. A, it's a gradual thing. It's like the, the metaphor with the, the frog and the boiling pot of water. I do not know this. You know, you put the frog in the water and it's cool water, but then you put it on the stove and you turn it on and then the water slowly starts to boil and the frog doesn't realize he's in trouble until he's in boiling water and then he's dead. So it's the same way for me with weight. It's you know slow, gradual process, and then I don't realize I'm in trouble till I see a picture that you take, and I go, "Hey, why am I hiding a beer keg under my shirt?" I have to be honest. So my confession of the day: PJ will sometimes say to me, um, "Can you take a picture of me? Like the dog's lying on him, and it looks really cute." You know, as a couple, I don't have the ability to tell him, "Hey, you know, maybe your weight's climbing up there." So I will use the opportunity to take a photo of him lying on the sofa, and I'll take it at this angle where, yeah, the dog looks really cute and PJ looks great, but then he just catches the right angle of his belly. So then I'll go, "Oh, look how cute the photo is," and he'll look, "Oh," and then he kind of starts. He sees, he zooms in on. He's like, "Is that what my stomach looks like?" And then I'll say, oh, "I don't know. Let, let, let me see." 
Yeah, but you can't say to your, whether you're male or female, you can't say to somebody, you're looking kind of chunky. It's just mean. You say Even that- if it's meant with the best of intentions, it's, it's mean. So when I say to you, PJ, I think I've put weight on, because I can tell by my clothes. And I'm not saying that I feel fat. I just feel like I've put a few pounds on and I'll say, do I, do I look like I've put a few pounds on? And what do you say? I honestly never think that you look like you've put on pounds. You always sort of feel that you have put on pounds or you've lost pounds. To me, it's always, I always think you look terrific. And that's not just some sort of lie. I just think that I cannot tell. Well, if you remember Chamonix Nancy, who was probably 50 pounds heavier than now, and you saw me as no different. So I think I'm lucky that way. So I read an article this morning and it says a woman should always tell her husband he's put on weight. So in this story, she says that she was watching her husband get dressed and she noticed that he had, you know, put a little weight on in the middle. So she just said, get yourself down to the gym. And she said, it's our responsibility to tell our partners that they've put on weight. I disagree. (laughs) There's two reasons why. Like I said, I think it, number one, it, whether you're male or female, it's hurtful. And and it's, you know, we have this societal image of like, oh, it's only women that get sensitive about being pointed out. No, guys as well, we're sensitive. And so it's that, that it's, it's hurtful. But number two, (laughs) you and I both know if, I were to say to you, or you were to say to me, hey, you know, you're gaining a little bit of weight. You need to l- lose some weight. Both you and I would double down and be like, oh, yeah, I'm getting, you want to see weight gain? And it'd be immediately like, just look at me plow into this gallon of ice cream. You want to talk weight? Here we go. I don't think I would do that. <laughs> you, yes. I might bake angrily. Yes. <laughs> I've been yes. known to do that. Yes. Don't bake in anger. But then I would just be eating the dough before it's cooked and say that I don't mm. eat the cookies. Yes. The woman says in the article, the reason she feels that it's our obligation to tell a partner that they're putting on weight. I don't know if you agree with this, PJ, but her, she cited two statistics in the UK. And she says that these statistics are prevention in keeping her husband healthy. So in the UK, for the first time, um, you know the little green flashing light that tells you that you can cross the street? It's going to be increased by 20% from 6.1 to 7.3 seconds because people are fatter and people need longer time. So 26% of adults in the UK are obese and 40% are overweight and they need longer time to cross the road. And The fire department in the UK is called out every four hours to help ambulance services because they have to move people with obesity. Uh, That's great. So because of green lights, all our feelings get to be hurt. Is there no easy way I could say to you? No, no, there's no easy way. There really isn't. And also, like, I kind of do really know when I'm getting to that point because I will ask you, I'll say, I'll say like, hey, do you think I'm getting weight? And you'll, you'll be like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. I you don't always really say, say anything. No, you I always are, say I love you. you. Exactly. Yes. You're you're either mysteriously quiet or choose to do some other chore or. No, no, no. Because what happens is you, okay, you ask me the question and then my mind goes to how would PJ answer this? And so you would always say the nicest things to me. Like, I love you just as you are. You're beautiful. So I just try to come up with that. And also the bottom line is, is that you have to want to start to lose the weight on your own. And so you got to, like for me personally, I have to come to that realization. For me, as you said, it's usually some photo. I'll see a photo, random photo. And it's like, 
geez, is that what I really look like? Because in my mind, I think I, you know, hey, I'm looking like Tom Cruise. That's the thing about being in a couple, right? I mean, you're supposed to be able to to talk openly and honestly and directly. But when you're in the beginning of a relationship, here's the question. Why do we ignore the signs? You know, there's things that go on when you don't know each other that well. And you kind of are in doubt all the time. You overanalyze. And in the story, if we go back to 1995, it's the end of the summer. I've been dating this guy that you know, hasn't been nice to me. And in our last episode, PJ said something to me that kind of rang a a bell. And I thought, yeah, why is that? Because the guy had mentioned to me something about I was kissing him and he made a comment about how I like to kiss so much. And PJ's like, yeah, he's not into you. So I went back and I looked at some of the entries I wrote. I was with this guy for maybe two months, just over two months. So in chronological time, I went back and I wrote a few things the guy said to me. And I want to ask PJ what this person, Ben, is saying to me and what PJ is interpreting. Uh, So, PJ, here we go. Before I start, though, I just want to say I'm completely embarrassed by these entries. I mean, the fact that... And before you start, I should also add, for any relationship, the first six months should just be a honeymoon stage. So it's all like goo-goo-ga-ga. I just want to kiss this person and be with them. So if there are those big problems within those first six months, get out. Cut bait. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, I'm embarrassed and not just by what these entries reveal about like my frame of mind at that point, but also just because they're so poorly written. Okay, number one. So this is June to August 1995. When I tried to kiss Ben, not his real name, he pulled away and said, I've never met someone who likes kissing so much. It made me feel paranoid. Um, yeah, that's a bad sign. Especially, like I said, if this is the first within the first six months and <laughs> they just want to pull away from kissing. That's not a good side. Things are going to go even worse. Okay. You should be the one to say, all right, well, I'm going to find somebody who likes to kiss. All right. Number two, this isn't looking good for me. So this is probably about a month in. We were talking about past experiences and Ben threw out the number 150 or more at me. I'm still completely shocked and a firm believer that people at this point in life don't change. I was so inhibited after this. Okay, so I'm assuming 150 or more is not some sort of uh, score in a sport. Exactly. That's uh, that's a lot. He was 32. That's a lot. And he had a full-time job? Yes. I don't know how he would fit in those kind of numbers. Anyway, regardless of how he fitted in, what should that tell me? Um, that he, and, uh, He's loose. He's a loose man. He's got loose morals. <laughs> So not for me, not for me. Run the other way, Nancy. He's not the type of boy you want to bring home to mom. You know, you and I were talking at this time. I should have gone to you with my problems. (laughs) All right, the third one. I had my own problems at the time. You still do. It's as if Ben reads into every suspicion and reassures me without me having to ask the question. Last night, he started talking to me about his lack of funds and that he's actually been mentally telling how much he owes me. I feel like things could go long term and we should buy a house together. You mean you should buy the house and he's going to live there if he's not paying for stuff. And I know where his money's going. 150 women. That's a lot of cups of coffee. But do you think if he's like saying, yeah, yeah, I'm keeping a note of how much money I was spending on him, do you think that was real? Or do you think he was just using that as like to appease me? Yes, that's just sort of, uh, you know, maybe I'll get another dinner out of this if I tell her, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I got the, it's all tabulated. But that's what I mean. He would do those little things like they're manipulative. Right? Because mm-hmm. it makes you think, oh, he, he does care. He's changing. Yeah, just to string you along. 
All right. Continuing with the stringing along. Number four, I just hung up with Ben and he told me once again, he's not coming over. It's been almost two months and we've only seen each other really about two weekends, I guess because it's summer or maybe I have too much expectation for some night to make me feel special. Yeah. He's not coming over because he's trying to reach uh, 160. Okay. That magic 160. So if somebody's not making an effort to see you in the first few months, right? Get exactly. out. Exactly. In the first six months, it should be like, ah, oh, do they have to go home now? Or immediately after the date's over, like, hey, what are you doing? I, uh, do you mind if I come over? How about you come over here? It shouldn't be, yeah, that. Where are they? What's going on? How come they won't call me back? All right. Next one. Two weeks ago, Ben told me that he would like to start talking every day and that he really liked me. It was about our two-month mark. But now I'm getting a huge brush off. He's been partying for the last five nights and he's acting as though we're friends. Maybe I'm imagining all of this and putting myself through it. But I feel like if I was listening to someone else tell this story, I would never advise that person to say, yeah, stick with being treated disrespectfully. Yeah, you should have gone with that voice that you had. He's on his march to 160. This is another entry. Two days ago, Ben tells me he doesn't want to go to the next level and wants to keep things as they are now. Light. He doesn't know why he told me before that he wanted to talk to me every day, but he no longer feels that way. For some reason, he's not ready to go on. Blah, blah, blah. I asked him why he bothered to come and meet my family, and he said he thought he was being nice. Yes, that's not even, you don't even have to read any signs, because he's just, he's literally telling you, I just want to keep it light, which means just let's not be together. But you know my brain. Right? Unless you break up with me and move yeah, I, even then. and change addresses. Even then. Right. Okay, Paige, here's the last one. I get really strong and I decide to break up with him, even though he doesn't like me. I told Ben I don't really want to see him anymore because I was just going to get hurt and I didn't want that. He didn't really say much. I did add that he should not say things like, I like you and want to talk to you every day if you don't mean it. His reply was that it didn't have to be every day. He dropped me off and he said, call me and we'll hang out this weekend. That's the guy's nice way of saying, yes, I agree. We're broken up and uh, I won't call you and we won't hang out, but it's great. I don't think you should give yourself that much uh, of a hard time. I mean, two months is enough to sort of take crap and then go, eh, that's it. And you did. And you, you were the one who went, eh, not going to take this. Yeah. But why didn't I see the signs? I, I mean, I wrote in my journals all the time. I wish I could just have a positive sign and all these negative signs were there. Why couldn't I just read those? I think because if you're an optimistic person, you're always looking for that little nugget of hope in a relationship. You so know? you don't, you don't think it's like about being strong. Cause everybody always said to me, you're so strong and powerful. But when I read who I was in my twenties, I, I mean, I did things and I was, you know, traveling and trying to start new adventures but when it came to relationships, I was, look at the mistakes I made. Why? I mean, a guy literally, he slept with 150 women. Like, wouldn't that be a sign to go, see ya, buddy? Yeah, but you're still, you're young and you can still be strong and date somebody who's kind of uh, a jerk. I guess so. Maybe I'm just really hard on myself. Anyway, let's go back to our story. So that is the August of 1995. And at this point in our relationship, PJ, we've known each other for five years. Yeah. We're both living in Toronto. Yeah. What are you doing at this point? Oh, I just started, um, you know, I'd been unemployed for a while on and off, and then I had a bad office job. And finally, I got my foot in the music industry door. A friend of mine was a music journalist, and she found this new magazine. So I don't know if it was really a foot in the door, because the magazine was, as I say, a startup. And the guy lived outside of Toronto, so I had to go up there to see him. It was on commission only, and I was doing sales, which <laughs> for anybody that knows me, I'm I think I'm reasonably charming, but I can't close anything to save my life. But of course, I was willing to once again work for free. How long was the commute? 
uh, I don't know, an hour or something. <laughs> Hour north of Toronto, and you know it wasn't like I was getting reimbursed for Traveling that. Traveling like two hours every day to not make any money, but I was really passionate about it because I loved music. I'm not like you; like you have a real. To me, you're really talented with your history of. <laughs> so talented, if, so talented at not making money. I mean, talented in the way that you have a passion for music, and you read so much about different singers and eras of music and history of music, and you have such this library of knowledge. And also, like, you love every kind of music. I was never that cool person, like, into alternative music and things like that. So this, for me, was, I saw this as a career. Like, I really was interested in it. My friends were working in the industry. When you're younger, also, you're willing to do that sort of stuff. You're willing, eh, okay, well, it barely pays anything, but, you younger. know, it's a start in the career. And- PJ, I've been doing this now for, like, five years, working at things that weren't <laughs> That's paying. That's true. You really, you really. I was a bit slow. What about you? What, you? I don't know what you did after the... Mighty Jungle had ended. So what were you doing? Uh, so at this point, I'm still mostly making my money at, wow, combination of things. Stand up, started doing road gigs and college gigs and stuff like that. Then also writing. I started writing with a friend of mine who sold a script. He and I worked on it together. What, and was, then, the, what was the script? Uh, it was a kid's comedy type movie about this uh, kid who was looking for the world's greatest uh, chocolate maker. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and also I was working the, the, in Canada. There used to be a, a channel called YTV, which stood for Young Persons Television. And I was working as a writer for a sketch show for them. What is a sketch show for young people? Uh, it's just like Saturday Night Live, except without the politics or without being dirty. Yeah. Again, so what is a sketch show for young people? <laughs> so for example, like one, one of the sketches I wrote was uh, a sketch, uh, hey, how did they finally get to the cops figuring out when they interview somebody, the good cop, bad cop routine. How did they finally get to that? Did it start off like hungry cop, full cop, uh, thirsty cop, uh, not thirsty cop, uh, happy cop, sad cop? I see. So it was a short-lived career in YTV for you, was it? (laughs) But the the fun part about this is I started into music, but you at that time were also making um what do you call those? Music videos. Yeah. The friend I was talking to you about uh, that we were writing and doing short films, he co-founded a small film company as well at that time. So that's how they made their money, was by doing uh, music videos. Because, because that as, was 1995. So. Yes. And as you know, in Canada, oh. when you have a media and you're producing media, you have to have how much percent that's Canadian content? Are you asking me? Yes. Um, I'm going to say 30%. 30%. That's woo, correct. Woo, woo, woo. You go on to round two of Canadian content. So yeah, the Canada, and I believe they probably still do have a version of MTV. So it was like, what did they call it? Was it called Much, Much Music? Yeah, Much Music. Yeah, yeah. So Much Music was new and they had to have 30% Canadian music videos. So that's where uh, my friend's company came in. They filled that hole and they made these uh, Canadian music videos and they were great. I mean, you might think like, oh, Canadian, how good they could be. But Canada has a great film school in Toronto called Ryerson. So all of these amazingly technically skilled people were coming out of there and boom, they'd come into my friend's uh, company and make these music videos. And also, so I was working there as a producer, kind of producer, basically you put them together, you organize everything, that type of you stuff. You were the organizer? Yeah, I know. Hard to believe. <laughs> that tells you how disorganized my friend's company was if, if I was in charge of organizing stuff. So, yeah, and also at the time, like I said, I was still acting, and so once a month I'd get a commercial, and also I was in, I would say, at least 
70% of the videos what? that we made. Yes. Can we see these videos? We were, oh yeah. If you just like Google. I'll have to, I'm going to look these up. Uh, you know, 90s Canadian music videos. You will see me <laughs> at least four or five of those I guess videos. I know what I'm doing this yes. afternoon. Because like I said, we all knew each other. It was a small company. So yeah, all the, and he was directing a video. It was like, hey, BJ, come and be this stupid idiot in this video. Okay. I could take that in so many directions, but I'm just going to say that it was amazing how small that music community was in Toronto because you and I didn't intentionally end up going, you know, into that sort of field, but we started crossing paths even more because of that. But that's That's one of those things that kept our orbits in uh, close proximity. Yeah, that's for another episode, our orbits, I believe. So let's just end this episode with a journal entry, PJ. This is my first post breakup sort of entry. And it's significant for the story because really, you know, it's the first time in my twenties I am sort of settled in Toronto and also going into this world of dating. I mean, I really had thought that PJ and I were going to be together and that we were going to be married by this point and it didn't work out. And this particular relationship with Ben really influenced how I went into further relationships. So what's the date on this one, PJ? All right. So this is August 15th, 1995. Going back in time. It's Beautiful summer in Toronto. Humidex is low. I don't know what that means, but it sounds comfortable. And there's a nice breeze coming off of Lake Ontario. That was your time travel weather report with PJ Heslin. <laughs> okay, so here you go. As much as I hope Ben will call and say he's been thinking about things and wants them to work out, it's not going to happen. I have to focus on new people, even though I feel that this is not over between us and I will see him again. Can I just say, when I hear myself write these things... I did this with you as, to, as well. Like, even though it's we're broken up and you would end things, I still would, like refuse to let go, right? Yes, you've got a good stick-to-itiveness. Uh, but everyone feels that way when there is some sort of ending. I should be thrilled that I found a job in the field that I want to be in, but instead I'm drowning in self-pity. I'm imagining a competition in my mind as to who is stronger to refrain from calling. Like, he gives a crap about me. That's true. He does not. Uh, why should he call? Um, unless he left something at your place. I don't know. Uh, I'm the one who ended it. I ended a relationship with someone who doesn't even like me. I'm sure he is really sweating it out, wondering how he will possibly survive not calling me. I have to face facts. No matter what my heart is crying and hoping for, some last desperate attempt to happen, it's over. Ben does not like me and cannot imagine a future together. No matter no matter that I truly believed there was some potential because we were set up by friends. How could friends be wrong? My sister's friend told me, this is a typical situation, no offense intended, but it's common for men to make the first emotional move, then retract and top it all off with a big no comment when you're the one to have the balls to break it off. Next story. I actually found this like really hurtful because my sister is about 10 years older than I am and they... She and her friends had more experience with dating, and I really thought this was just a unique story. I just found the one wrong apple. I think she nailed it, though. I think it's true. I think guys do sort of make the first emotional move, and then we're like, oh, Jesus, what did I do? What happened? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yikes. Okay, so you end up saying this is your last little bit. Miraculously, because I am not a dater yet, I'm dumbfounded to think my situation is not unique. And no matter how I try to assess the situation to accommodate my healing process, the story remains the same. Say ça. And again with a little bit of French. Well done. You know me, PJ. I always tried to put a little bit of French in there. Ooh la la. Oh my gosh. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together and share the link with friends. 
This podcast is a spin-off of our manuscript. See nancyandpj.com for more. A big thanks to Alyssa, Dustin, and Isaac at Life's Tough Media. In our next episode, PJ shops his first short film while Nancy dives into the Toronto music scene.